You're listening to The Real Investment Show. So I'm uh, reading this headline here. Starbucks is giving away free red cups. So if you order a, a special coffee at Starbucks, peppermint mocha or chestnut praline latte, which is, by the way, about 900 calories, um, they'll give you a free red cup. And the cup is reusable, so this is, this is a good thing, right? Right, you can reuse the cup. But aren't all cups that they give you free? I mean, it's part of the part of what you pay for. I mean, I've never been to Starbucks to order a cup of coffee. They say, oh, by the way, when you're done, can I have the cup back? <laughs> so the only difference is, is this one is reusable. But <laughs> I just thought that was kind of funny. You know, because we're talking about inflation, right? Inflation's going up. And, and it was interesting uh, listening to McDonald's. McDonald's is talking about the fact they've been able to raise prices on food. And so far, customers haven't complained. Oh, they're complaining. They're just lazy and won't cook at home. So they're going to pay your higher prices for now. But there's a point where they'll say, you know what? I will cook at home because it is now cheaper to cook at the house than to be lazy and go to McDonald's. So, yeah, customers are complaining. And, and it's everywhere right now. So, you know, whether it's at the gas pump or whether it's at McDonald's or wherever it is, they're all blaming the president for it. But, yeah, they're complaining about your prices. Have you seen those stickers? Yes. I did this? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, they are complaining. They're just not complaining to you directly, so don't be mistaken about that. Joining me this morning uh, to talk a little bit more about inflation and the next big shock is Michael Leibowitz, CFA. Mike, welcome to the show this morning. How are you? Thank you. Thank you. I think inflation is a huge deal, and you you you, you nailed it when you mentioned Biden's name. Yeah. Because I didn't actually mention inflation- his name. I said the president. But, you know, <laughs> I was trying to leave names out of it. I wasn't name-calling. <laughs> no, but, you know, the fact of the matter is that it's been proven time and time again that the economy and inflation can dictate who's in the House and Senate and the presidency. Sure. And Biden knows it, right? Or his assistants know it and they're telling Biden that, right? That if inflation is persistent, i.e. it's north of 4% a year from now, mm-hmm. they're going to lose the House and Senate. Right. And it has nothing to do with politics. It just has to do with consumer confidence and mood and economics. Right. Right. And Uh, and, uh, we always say here on the show, look, uh, at the end of the day, you can go up to to the podium and you can talk about whatever policy you want. But at the end of the day, people vote by their pocketbook. So if they feel if you're in office and people are wealthier and happier and uh, and are doing better economically, they'll vote to keep you in office. If they're not, they're going to vote for a change because it all comes down to their pocketbook at the end of the day. Right. And one of the conversations that we've maybe had the same conversation half a dozen times mm-hmm. where we say, OK, what can Biden do? Right. This isn't necessarily Biden's fault. Some of it is. Some of it isn't. But what can Biden do? Biden knows there's a midterm election in about a year from now, almost exactly a year from now. Right. Mm-hmm. What can he do to get inflation down? The obvious, traditional, not not obvious, but the traditional way to do it is to have to put pressure on the Fed and get them to hike rates, get them to stop QE. And that will slow economic activity. And that will, in theory, stop inflation. Right. But but 
that gets you unelected because now you have rising job losses, slower economic growth, a recession, a falling stock market, and now the people that are supporting you on a donation basis, since the top 10% of people own all, you know, 90% of the stock market, they're not going to support you to rerun for president. So now you're out of office again. So hiking rates isn't really a solution. Yes, it'll certainly slow activity and lower inflation, but it has a lot of other consequences. But and the risk to it is, let's just say he decides to go down that road. Yeah. The risk is that we know that a lot of this supply demand mismatch mm-hmm. is coming from shortages from the supply lines and the boats sitting out at sea, the docks, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yep. If that doesn't resolve itself in a year, you could slow down the economy and inflation could still be running four, five, six, seven percent. Right. Then you got what's called stagflation and stagflation guarantees he'll lose the House and Senate. Well, right? and, so, so it's yeah. not even a risk free uh, policy stance from the, the inflation point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's no, it's it's, you know, for for policymakers, you know, this is a very tough situation. Your problem on the ports is, is that you've got a lot of imports of goods coming in on containers, but you're short 80,000 truckers. So, you know, you need to train truckers, get them on the road. But again, there's not, you know, people are walking around going, well, I don't want to be a trucker. I don't want to drive cross country. I mean, (laughs) you know, we've got a labor problem. You know, part of the labor problem that we have in the country is a lack of skilled labor. You know, truck drivers have a skill, right? And we don't teach those skills. We don't encourage those skills uh, for, you know, electricians and plumbers and and construction workers and these type of uh, truck drivers and, and all the other things that go on. We don't we don't provide, you know, skill training anymore. We don't encourage skilled labor. So, you know, the problem with labor, we've had labor shortages now that, you know, everybody acts like we're having a labor shortage now for the first time ever. No, we were having labor. If you remember all from 2012 after the financial crisis to 2020, we were talking about we've got a mismatch of, of unskilled labor. The, the biggest problem for, for manufacturers is they can't hire skilled labor. There's not enough skilled labor. We had record levels of, of job openings in the manufacturing area with no skilled labor to fill them. This is not new. It's just exacerbated because we've created the economic shutdown created some additional demand on an already a shortage of product and skilled labor. And now it's just out of control and everybody's going, well, you know, what are you going to do about it? You can't do anything about it until you start to start to train people, you know, provide education, you know, for skilled labor, get people back into the blue collar labor force, which we have been, you know, demonizing ever since the 1980s. Right. In 2019, there were more job openings than there were unemployed people. Right. 2019. I'm not talking about now, now that there's, I think it's what, 1.4. Right. 1.6 job openings for each unemployed for each person that's lost a job since COVID. It's it's actually even there's more of a shortage now than there was then. Then that basically what that tells you is that workers who can fill these jobs have great leverage, right? They have incredible leverage. They can go into their boss and say, "I want to raise," or "I'm going to go to the store across the street," and he'll pay me, right? You can go to McDonald's and make 18 bucks an hour. You know some of these. Some of these McDonald's are paying 20 bucks an hour. It's because there are just not enough workers either with the skills, like you said, or willing to do the jobs. There's a a statistic they put out, the BLS puts out, it's called the quits rate. And the quits rate is anyone that has left their job because they're seeking a new job. It's not to take care of a child. It's not because they want to retire. It's not 
for other reasons. It's because they want a new job, a different job that pays more or is closer to their house. For, for some reason, that benefits them. A lot of times, it's just more money, right? Mm -hmm. The quits rate is 3% right now. It was traditionally too low 2% of the economy. So you have an extra 1% of the workforce that's out there right now demanding more, and they will get more. In most cases, they will get more, or they will get what they want because there's such a, a demand for labor right now. So what does that mean? It means McDonald's has to pay 20 bucks an hour instead of 15 bucks an hour. And what does McDonald's do? They don't want to lose money. They don't even want to see their earnings grow less than they did last year. So they have to raise the price of the Big Mac and the cheeseburger and all that. Right. And and what starts happening is you get this wage price spiral and a wage price spiral is, well, now the workers saying that's great that I make 20 bucks an hour. But a Big Mac is eight bucks. I can I can still only afford one Big Mac. I want more Big Macs. Yeah. Well, now McDonald's has to pay the worker more because he's demanding more, then they raise the price of Big Macs. You know, but it's a good point here. And, you know, what we've got to work on, and this is the thing that we need to talk about, you know, more in terms of policy is that, you know, when inflation is going up, and you're right, you know, if, uh, McDonald's is going to be increasing interest rate, uh, sorry, you know, prices because of higher wages. But there's a point to where that buckles the economy and you get an economic slowdown entirely. So, you know, it, it's it's interesting to talk about the fact that we're all getting higher wages. That's great, but there's a very direct correlation between wage spikes and economic growth. And it's you know we we would psychologically think that you know higher wages would lead to stronger economic growth, but it's actually the opposite. When you have spikes in wages, which you're having now, those actually precede economic recessions because of the fact that you do get an inflationary push that exceeds the wage growth itself and it slows economic activity. So, you know, this is one of the things that, that you know, is going to be a real conundrum for individuals over the course of the next, you know, really couple of months because as, you know, we start talking about, you know, the economy and, and growing the markets, et cetera, you know, the expectations going into 2022 are extremely exuberant. Goldman Sachs is expecting 5,100 on the S&P, another 10% advance. Earnings growth to continue their growth rate at the current levels that we are you know, reaching as much as $210 a share in earnings next year. But you know, with the wage pressures, with you know, inflationary pressures, with everything else you've got going in the economy, there is going to be an impact to earnings growth and economic growth going into next year because of simply just how the market cycles work and what happens. So when we come back from the break, we're going to shift gears and talk about the next big shock because even the Fed is now talking about the next big shock. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. We'll be right back. And welcome back to the show this morning. So talking about the next big shock, uh, two Fed members have now rang the alarm bell over the broken Treasury market, which they caused, which is interesting. Um, two, two statements that were made I thought were very interesting yesterday, and we'll get uh, more into this with Michael Leibowitz here as well. Fed Williams, a uh, New York member of uh, Williams was patting himself on the back, saying the Fed's bazooka of QE unleashed at the onset of the pandemic, along with prompt fiscal measures enacted by Congress and emergency steps taken by the Federal Reserve and other government agencies, ultimately proved successful at restoring the functioning in the Treasury markets and other financial assets. 
His next statement came a little bit more dangerously close to the truth, which is one thing that is clear when examining the causes of these market disruptions is they were not primarily driven by economic forces. Uh, yeah, you shut down the economy, not you, but the government just shut down the economy. <laughs> they thought that was a good idea. But rather by the failure of markets to function in ways they were expected to do in response to those particular circumstances. Well, that's been the case now for 12 years, ever since the financial crisis. Markets have not been functioning related to what the Fed thought they were supposed to, which is why we continue to do QE, because we keep doing QE to try to support economic growth and create inflation, and yet you've got no inflation up to now because of the pandemic and the shutdown, and you've had no economic growth to speak of. Barely staying above 2%, which is what's called escape velocity. That's the level at which above 2% economic growth, you actually create jobs in the economy, not just keep jobs up with the population growth. I thought this was interesting because President Loretta Mester also came out and she said, with uncertainty related to the pandemic, many investors sought to move to cash and even liquidated their positions in U.S. treasuries that are seen as haven assets. Um, no, that's not correct at all. In fact, if you look at fund flows over the last several years, fund flows into U.S. treasuries are about 20 times as high as they've been going into equities. People are, are shoving money into treasuries and bonds, which is why, despite the fact that we've got a risk-on universe of stocks and you've got rising inflation, yields don't rise because people are just pouring money into treasuries. So with that said, you know, this is basically laying out the groundwork for what they're concerned about in terms of being the next big shock. And for that, let me go to Michael Leibowitz, who just wrote an article on this. It's on our website today. Go to realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, and his article is up called The Next Big Shock. Mike, what do you think about these two comments? It's literal gibberish, right? What Mester said, yields fell sharply for every yield from really short yields to the 10 and 30 year bonds. Investors reacted as they should have. There was nothing normal with investors selling stocks, with investors moving to cash. Mm -hmm. The economy was shut down. That's something we have never really seen, right? Mm -hmm. Economic growth was necessarily going to be very bad, right? We knew unemployment was going to spike. If you're an investor, shouldn't you be taking some risk off the table? Shouldn't you be hedging? Shouldn't you be moving to bonds? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what they think is normal behavior, <laughs> but I think for investors, normal behavior is to change your risk level, to hedge, to protect yourself when things are not going well. Mm -hmm. And when things are, it's not only not going well, this is something none of us have ever seen before. Right. Where they're literally you can't go to you can't go shopping. You can't do anything. You can't go to work. There were massive layoffs. I'm not sure what they're talking about. And Lance, here's what's what's crazy. They have they have permanently distorted these markets. Right. The Treasury. I mean, the, I'm sorry. The Federal Reserve owns a quarter of all U.S. Treasuries outstanding. And if you take a look at what we call the float. So the float is how many are really outstanding. So, for instance, a pension fund owns a lot of bonds. They have no intent of selling those bonds. Mm -hmm. They're going to hold them to maturity because it matches their liabilities. So if you look at their float, they probably own half of all the available bonds outstanding. They have grossly distorted the price of bonds. So all the natural buyers and sellers are not there. 
So when things happen in the markets, when there are shocks, the normal buyers and sellers don't come in to, to help minimize some of those shocks. This is all they're doing. And now it's, use the word shock again, it's kind of shocking that they're calling this out, right? I mean, two, it, it's also weird, Lance. We've never really heard them talk about this, right? Resiliency in the treasury market in this respect. And two of them came out yesterday, and one being the New York Fed President Williams. It's his it's his job to met to quote unquote manage markets. When the Fed does QE, it's it's Williams and his team that goes in there and buys assets. When the Fed wants to raise interest rates or lower interest rates, it's his team that trades very short term money market instruments to help move interest rates to where they want them. So what's he talking about the next big shock? And you know what? If we we're talking about the stock market, we may say the next big shock is the next time it drops 30% in two weeks like it did in March. Mm -hmm. But I, I think in bonds, it can mean two, one of two things, that yields are going to zero across the whole yield curve or that yields are going to 4%. I don't even know when he refers to shock if he's referring to a spike up or a spike down in yields. Um, and I, I actually think that they're equally concerned about yields dropping like a rock. And part of that is because there's, believe it or not, despite these massive deficits, there's not a lot of supply of treasury notes and bonds outstanding, as crazy as that sounds. And we see that every day the Fed does their repo program and they're, they're lending now a trillion and a half of securities every single day. And so you may ask, well, why? Who wants to buy all these bonds? And some of it is just people need bonds. People are using it to hedge. We own some bonds right now as a, you know, they're hedging us. We're not in it for the one and a half percent coupon, but we are in it because if we, if yields go lower, we can make five, 10, 15% on our bond positions with relatively less risk than stocks. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, but the, the bigger problem is that, and we've pointed this out numerous times, leverage is a mess in all the markets. Right. And for leverage, you have to borrow money. You also have to put up collateral. In almost all cases, collateral is treasuries, right? Treasury bills, sometimes treasury notes. Mm -hmm. So they are taking this collateral, this, these bonds out of the market, essentially calling them collateral, giving them to the bank that's lending them the money and taking that supply out of the market. So, you know, when we talk about resiliency of the market or the next big shock, it's hard to know whether they're talking about inflation scaring the market, bringing it all the, up much higher in yield, which would destroy the economy, or dropping yields to near zero, which has other implications for the economy, for the dollar, for the global economy. So it's, it's you know, like you said, Lance, I just think it's kind of shocking that they both said similar statements on the same day. Yeah, and, and normally, you know, we talk about the Fed, you know, kind of releasing these you know, kind of messages or these uh, trial balloons into the markets to see how the markets react. And, you know, is this just a trial balloon or is they are, is the Fed actually, you know, sending out these messages to try to warn the market about potentially a bigger problem that's occurring? You know, and it's interesting when they, you know, they talk about the treasury markets and they talk about what's going on. They're responsible for all of this. And, I, you know, they never look back at themselves and go, maybe it's our actions that are causing this. It's never their problem. It's always everybody else's problem. And they're just there right. to try to solve it. But, 
And again, in our article that we've got coming out tomorrow, we've take a look at the history of the financial markets and interest rates and what goes on with the markets itself. And going back through history, back to 1980, after the Fed became active and you know doing their monetary policies to a great degree after Paul Volcker, Every financial crisis, whether it was the Orange County uh, saving, uh, the Orange County crisis, the savings and loan crisis, uh, long-term capital management, the dot-com crisis, there's there's a direct correlation between Fed actions, what they're doing with interest rates and monetary policy, relative to every one of these crises. So they create the booms, and it's never their fault, and they create the bust, and it's never their fault. It's always somebody else's. Right, and look, we can look at valuations. Valuations are now higher than at the same or higher levels in 1999 and well beyond 1929. That is setting up an incredibly poor risk outlook, right? Mm -hmm. That's not a resilient market, right? If you go back to uh, January, uh, I'm sorry, March of 2020, the market fell 30%. That's what the market should have done with the economy shut down. A resilient market wouldn't have jumped up 50, 60% from there in a matter of you know less than a year when the economy shut down when everything is slowing the reason the market shot up so much is because the fed came to their rescue right and they they pumped in a ton of money and liquidity into the markets and here we are today with what looks like a nice stable market that goes up every day everyone's happy it couldn't be more unstable right now it's lacking resilience as much as it you know it's kind of funny to say but the bounce off the lows in march was not resilience. That that's not what that's not what the Federal Reserve should really want to see. They should want to see a market that's properly evaluating the economy, earnings and stocks and pricing accordingly. And I think over time they would have realized that the pandemic would be relatively short-lived, the effect on the economy at least. I mean it's still affecting us. And over time it would grind higher. Yep. But to valuations that make sense. Well, and, and like we said earlier, with interest rates going up, you know, the one narrative that's been supporting these high valuations is that low interest rates support high valuations. Right. Uh, unfortunately, you can't have it both ways. With interest rates going up, you can't say interest rates support high valuation. You know, higher rates support higher valuations. Uh, you know, it can't be both. And so that's going to be one of the bigger problems potentially coming up for the markets. So we come back from the break. I want to switch gears, talk about inflation here for a second. Uh, and more importantly, retail sales out earlier this week, just a, you know, a, a, a really good retail sales report. But really, was it as good as it appeared? And why is it that it seems like consumers are still spending despite these rising inflationary pressures? Be right back after the break. President Biden is asking the head of the Federal Trade Commission to look into whether oil companies are illegally increasing prices as consumers face high costs at the pump. Okay, um, I know that uh, President Biden's been around for about 80 years. I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly how old he is, but he's been around for a while. And oil prices are not dictated. You know, there's not a guy sitting at the head of ExxonMobil going, yeah. I think I'm going to charge $80 a barrel for oil today. So that's our that's our price for a barrel of oil. No, that's not how it works. You know who the the price of oil per barrel is set by NYMEX, which is the New York Mercantile Exchange, and that is traders on Wall Street that are speculating on the future price of oil. And they're driving the prices of oil contracts up and down, and that drives up the price of oil um, or down the price of oil, depending on what expectations are for delivery, et cetera, so forth. And if that wasn't the case, right, 
if you don't believe that, then oil companies would not have entire trading desks inside their companies to hedge against oil prices in the future. And they're buying futures contracts to hedge against their delivery of oil prices in the future. See, there's two different types of traders on the exchange that are trading in commodity contracts. And I write a report on a uh, once a quarter on the commitment of traders' contracts. There are the speculators in the markets, that's Wall Street, and they're the largest traders by far of contracts on commodity prices from everything from oil to lumber to copper to pork bellies. And then there's the non-commercial hedgers. These are the guys that are actually, you know, have product to deliver. So if I'm going to deliver a bushel of wheat and I plant my wheat in my field, it's going to take me three months to grow that wheat uh, and another month to bundle it, deliver it, whatever the time. I'm not a farmer, so whatever the time frame is, don't email me and tell me how long it takes to grow wheat. Okay, just follow me through here on the logic. I'm trying to, if, if the price of wheat today is $4 a bushel, but I think there's going to be a bumper crop this year, and and because of a lot of supply, that wheat prices would fall to $3. I can go out into the market and guarantee myself delivery at $4 by buying contracts. That's why, that's why farmers and commodity producers of all types hedge their contracts. Now, why am I telling you this? There's no illegal activity going on on pricing from oil companies. It has everything to do with what's happening on Wall Street. That's what's driving up prices. And the expectation is because of inflation, a shortage of supplies, demand, all these type of things, right? I just, you know, it's, it's going to require, there's a, there's a lack of supply of oil and there's too much demand in the economy for delivery of goods and products and services. So that demand supply imbalance is going to cause prices to go higher, right? So, but the question then becomes this inflationary pressure is feeding through to consumers, and consumers having to pay higher prices. We started out the show talking about McDonald's and, and the cost of, of stuff at McDonald's going up. And this is the interesting thing. So far, they've been able to pass it on. I'm going to read to you something here real quick because there was an article out on Yahoo Finance this morning talking about inflation is not a problem because consumers are able to take it in stride. This leads us up to the $64,000 question. Why do consumers appear so comfortable with higher prices? Uh, apparently, the author has not been on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, or anywhere else at this moment on social media talking about inflationary pressures and why consumers are upset about it. One answer is they're clearly earning more. Okay, data from the Economic Policy Institute shows a V-shaped wage recovery that began in April 2021 has translated into a 5% year-over-year jump in hourly earnings. Okay, hourly earnings are up 5% year-over-year. What's inflation right now? 62 Wages have gone up five. Inflation has gone up 6.2. What am I, what am I, what's, what's happening here, right? I'm still having to pay more for stuff than I'm actually earning. But that's not all. Yet the data suggests consumers are doing what they've always done. They've just spent more. Why are they spending more? Where's all the money coming from? Well, higher prices. You know what we have going on right now? Consumers at this moment are doing more than ever equity um, extractions from their mortgages. Last time we saw that to this degree was back in 2007. They're also turning back to credit card debt to make ends meet. This is sustainable for a while. All this money availability is sustainable for a while until it's not. 
Michael Leibowitz. Can I, I want to make a, your, your comments on this. What I want to make a U-turn and go back to oil. Okay. Cause I think that's what, what, you know, we've had a few conversations about this and what's really concerning is put yourself in the shoes of an oil producer, right? And you can pull oil out of the ground for say $60 a barrel. It's mm -hmm. different for every producer, but let's just say 60, right? Oil right now is in the upper seventies, low eighties. And all of a sudden the president is screaming bloody murder and he's doing whatever he can. He's asking foreign governments to release oil from reserves. He wants to release oil from our reserves because 80 is too much, right? Because mm -hmm. he wants to win an election in a year and we can't pay 80. So think about what that means for the producer. The producer is saying, okay, I can pull it out of the ground at 60, but the most I can ever make on it is 75 or 80 because the government's going to do whatever they can to keep the price below 75 or 80. Mm -hmm. Now, on the flip side, back in March and April of last year, the price of oil went negative. Where was the government, right? So there are the incentives the government puts out for oil producers is warped, right? In theory, what we should be seeing are our oil producers saying, let's put more rigs out there. Let's drill more. Let's do more because oil is 80 and it's probably going to keep going higher. But they're they're not doing that. They're not producing well, more why, oil, why, which why, would solve the price problem. Well, why would I? If I'm an oil producer right, right now and I've got the I'm government saying. coming after me at every corner to shut me down because of, you know, climate change well, and we need to transition into you know electric vehicles and, you know, right. there's all kinds of you know, removing incentives and et cetera for the production of oil. And what people forget is, is that the price of oil production goes up with the price of oil. Because as oil goes up, the cost of me for extract it from the ground goes up because I've got to pay higher wages, higher costs goes up, piping, drilling, everything else increases in price along with the price of oil, just like everything else. Then I've got to pay more. So what I was able to extract at 40 is now 50. What I was able to extract at 50 is now 60. And you know the spread between what companies are making on a barrel of oil and what it costs them to produce is, you know, continues to get squeezed just even as prices go up. So... You're right. I mean, the, you know, it's a warped been balance between what the government wants. You know, they don't care when oil prices go negative and, and gasoline is $1.35 at the pump. Um, they care a lot at three. But, you know, where, were there, where was the help for the oil companies when they needed help and they were going out of business? Right, right. So the, the incentives are warped. And this is true everywhere. They're warping markets, right? Mm -hmm. We talk about this in the stock market and bond market all the time. They warp markets through their participation, whether it's direct buying, direct selling, whatever they're doing. They don't let free markets be free markets. And the result of that is that the supply and demand become warped. They have problems. And in this case, they can't, they don't, there's no incentive to produce more oil. If they produce more oil, the supply would meet the demand and prices would stabilize or go down. Mm -hmm. And that, look, that may take six months or nine months or a year, but but now we're at the point where it's not doesn't make sense for producers to make a long five, 10 year bet on oil prices yeah. when you got a president trying to push them down. And then you got these policies that pretty much, you know, are calling for the demise of of oil in 10, 20 years. Well, look, right? and, and, and you've how got, look, you you've expect got, them to make these investments? Yeah, no, you've got activist investors that are now, you know, Dan Loeb with uh, Royal Dutch Shell trying to split the company into two parts and liquidate the oil production side. You've got, uh, you know, Engine One on the board of ExxonMobil trying to push them more into green energy production and away from oil production. You know, it's it's it sounds great, 
Um, you know, what nobody's thinking of is that in 10 years down the road, when you go to this whole idea of having, you know, electric vehicles everywhere and, and suppressing the price of oil, uh, the cost of everything is going to be dramatically higher because oil is in petroleum products. You know, we always think about, you know, oil in terms of gasoline, right? We don't think about in terms of the petroleum products used in virtually everything. The cost of flying a plane, the cost of building a plane, a car, houses, clothing, all that stuff. You know, the, those costs are going to be dramatically higher the more that you press down petroleum. So, you know, it's, it's you know, the the thought of being, you know, climate friendly is excellent. We've talked about this. So I got no problem with it. But we're not thinking through the, the unintended consequences of these actions as we go forward. And, you know, here's an interesting thing. I was listening to Joe Biden this morning, a, a clip from him yesterday talking about he was in, uh, I think, Detroit yesterday or Michigan, talking about having 500,000 you know, electric chargers all across the country uh, so people can charge their electric vehicles as they're driving across the country. Okay, so I'm driving across the country. i got to stop for an hour. i got to recharge my car to get to where I want to go. Um, that's one thing. But the other thing is, is you know, how are you going to start collecting taxes? To, you know, one thing that you get out of gasoline is when you fill up a tank of gasoline, you're paying taxes that support road construction, road development, all those types of, of, of things in the economy. You know, eventually you're going to start charging electric vehicles, you know, for the cost of taxes. And then, of course, who's going to pay for the electricity that they're using on these superchargers, right? So, you know, if the electricity cost goes up dramatically, which it will, you know, the cost of, of driving an electric vehicle is going to become very difficult down the road also. You know, right now right. it seems to be free, but it's not. Right. Uh, you know, it's they're not focused on the gap. Yeah. Right. At some point, we will have different forms of energy, whether that's 2030 or 2050. Who knows what it is? Right. Our, our mm -hmm. dependency on carbon, carbon type energy will go down, but we're not managing the next 20 years. How are we going to get there? How are we going to incentivize the oil companies to keep doing what they're doing, knowing that they have to change in the future? Yeah. And that's that's the big policy mistake they're making is the gap. Well, look, now it's, and it's, it's it's always the mistake that they make They're You know, they're always trying to solve a problem that is now and they don't plan for the unintended consequences that will come. Nobody's sitting up there thinking about, OK, if we do this, what is going to be B, C and D that happens from this action? They never think about that. And then when that crisis comes up, we're now solving that crisis. And this is the problem with government. We're always a reactionary government rather than a proactive government, which is why we're running, you know, $3 trillion in debt or $3 trillion deficit, because we're always reacting to the crises that we cause. That wraps up the show for the day. We'll be back tomorrow with Financial Fitness Friday with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff. Of course, tune in then. Make sure you get by our website today. Michael's new article is up called The Next Big Shock. It's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow. See you then. It's a rich man's world.